The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. This was the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers back here by the Kids Zone sign. And if it's your child's first time in Children's Church, please go with them so that we can get them checked in. Well, good morning. My name is Mark. Um, I am not on staff here, but I do play the banjo and they let me preach sometimes. So it's really good to be with everyone this morning. Uh, There's a great story that I enjoy about Charles Spurgeon. He was a famous Baptist preacher in London uh, in the 1800s. He's immensely popular. People would come from all around England to come here and preach. There's like 5,000 seats in his church Uh, and they had like another thousand spots for standing room and it was almost always just packed to the brim. He baptized, this is nuts, he baptized more than 14,000 people in his ministry. Uh, He's widely recognized as just one of the greatest pastors, preachers ever. Uh, And the story goes that after a sermon one time, they were all outside, he was kind of greeting folks, they were just kind of mingling, and an older lady from the congregation walks up to him and just lets him have it. She just tears him a new one. Uh, This is right after the worship service. She says, Mr. Spurgeon, you are the most arrogant, obnoxious, annoying man that I've ever heard of, and I wanted to be the one to tell you. (laughs) And she says this right after the worship service, so everybody, kind of like we do under the portico, everybody's kind of hanging out. She says this, you know, everyone just kind of gets quiet. (laughs) They're wondering how he's going to respond to her. He could have said a lot of things. He could have said, like, Hey, look around. I think these 6,000 people might disagree with you. Uh, He could have said, well, no one's ever told me that, so you must be the one who's in the wrong here. But you know what he said? This lady had just told Spurgeon how arrogant and prideful he is, and he kind of leans over to one of his elders who's standing right here, and he goes, yeah, she doesn't know the half of it. (laughs) Isn't that great? Uh, It's a very good image to have in mind as we're going to be looking at what Jesus means when he talks about greatness. What does it mean to be great in God's kingdom? What does he mean when he says, if anyone be first, you must be last and servant of all? So before we jump in, let me pray for us and then we'll get for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. Thank you that you give it to us because you love us. Uh, And in things like humility, that just doesn't come naturally to us. We want to be good. We want to do all the right things so we can feel like we've earned something. Uh, And so would you humble us this morning? 
Would you let us see you in all your beauty and greatness? Uh, help us to see what you would have us see and hear what you'd have us hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been making our way here through the Gospel of Mark for a while, uh, and we're in Mark chapter 9. And if you got your Bibles open, you can see just how ridiculous the disciples are. <laughs> like just in chapter 9, it starts off with what we call the transfiguration of Jesus. It's when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to this mountain and he kind of just reveals just a glimpse of his divinity to them. He just shines. Uh, Matthew's gospel says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. They heard the father's voice booming out, behold, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Uh, the next bit in chapter nine, there's this young boy who has been just living a miserable existence. He's been sick his whole life. He just, he's kind of possessed. That's the part where it's, the father cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. It's a great chapter. The disciples are trying to heal him, trying to cast out the demon, and they can't do it. So they call Jesus over, and Jesus, of course, casts it out. And they say, why couldn't we do it? You know, we've done this before. Why couldn't we cast the demon out? And Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. It's a very gentle slap to the face, right? It's not like the Will Smith slap. It's just a very gentle... <laughs> In other words, Jesus, Jesus tells them, you guys were trying to cast it out and do it on your own power, but if you just prayed and trusted God, he would have healed him. Uh, the next part in chapter nine, Jesus very clearly tells them for the second time, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm gonna die, and three days later, I'm gonna rise from the dead. And then in our passage, what it, like Jesus is doing incredible things. He's displaying his power and authority. And then what is the very next thing the disciples do in our passage? What are they discussing? Which one of them is the greatest, right? Uh, and then they know how ridiculous it is because when Jesus asked them in verse 33, hey, what were you discussing on the way? Verse 34 says, they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who is the greatest. They're not just having a polite conversation, they're arguing. They're like, hey, remember when I healed that guy? Or remember when I was very generous? Whenever I did all these great things, they're just going back and forth. On a personal note, it's stuff like this that makes me trust the Bible more, that as evidence that these really are firsthand accounts of what Jesus said and did. Because think about it, imagine you're trying to invent a religion and you want a bunch of followers and you wanna make it as attractive as possible. You would not have Jesus' closest friends and founders of said religion to act like these guys do, would you? The disciples don't look great in any gospel account they're always getting rebuked by Jesus. They're slow to catch on. They deny Jesus as he's going to the cross. They run away. They try to save themselves. Like, it, it, if you're going to try to make a religion, you're not going to put these guys front and foremost as the religion, right? But do you know who wrote two of the gospel accounts and who gave eyewitness testimony for the other two gospels? You can say, you can say it. The disciples, these guys. And it's such a contrast between how they tell the story of Jesus and how they acted as they lived and walked with Jesus. Now, I've never thought about it this week before really studying this passage, but it's a beautiful thought that the reason the disciples were able to have such an honest and transparent view of themselves and not be ashamed as just constantly missing it when Jesus was trying to talk to them, it's because they really took to heart what Jesus is saying here. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus uses the illustration of a child again, and he says, whoever humbles himself like this child 
is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what I really want us to hone in on this morning is what Jesus is teaching about true greatness and how that being truly great is inseparable from being humble. True greatness and humility. You want to be great, Jesus asks? Be humble. Be last. Be servant of all. Uh, and it's interesting how looking at different gospel accounts and Jesus uses children as examples a lot uh, and for what it means to be humble. Matthew's gospel is probably the most famous bit where Jesus says in Matthew 18, unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And in our passage in verse 37, Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In other words, to have a place in God's kingdom, Jesus calls you to be like a child. And he calls you to love and accept those who, like children, are completely dependent on others to help them live and survive. Uh, if you've got young kids, or you're a teacher, or you spend any time in the, nurse, the nursery or children's church, you know this. Kids are helpless. They can't do anything. And even if they can do anything, they want you to do it for them anyway. <laughs> uh, they, they have no shame in asking you to do everything for them. They know they need help, and up to a certain age, they have no qualms about being completely dependent on their parents or a teacher or whoever else. True greatness, Jesus says, is not trusting in yourself, but it's actually trusting in God. Listen to what God says in Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. I mean, we tend to think about true greatness that that's, and becoming this kind of spiritual giant is having all the right answers, right? It's having all your theology in a row, knowing all the Bible verses. People come to you and they ask for advice. That's kind of what we think about. We think of like this truly great Christian. If someone came up to you and asked, you know, what is the, tr how do you want to grow as a Christian? Like, what, you want to be a superstar Christian. How do you want to do that? Or maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure what you believe. You're just investigating Christianity. If you were to imagine, like, what a truly great Christian looks like, what, what do you imagine? I think most of us have this image of, like, this great Christian as someone who reads their Bible all the time. They're involved in all kinds of Bible studies and ministries. Maybe they're leading a thriving ministry. Uh, they're volunteering constantly in the church and in their community. You know, I, I imagine that if we're honest, we all think of this great Christian as someone who's just busy. They're doing stuff all the time. They're constantly working for God. And those are all good things. Like, please don't tell Jared when he gets back that I told you to stop reading your Bibles and volunteering in the church. Don't do that. Uh, but hear what Jesus is saying. He's saying that true greatness is not primarily about what you do. Otherwise, he wouldn't have used a child to illustrate that. Uh, in Luke chapter 10, this is a great passage, he sends out a bunch of his disciples to go to these cities and he gives them power and authority to heal people and cast out demons. And when they come back from doing this, they are pumped. <laughs> They're like, Jesus, we cast out demons, we healed people, it was amazing, we did all the stuff that you've been doing, wasn't it so awesome? And they're so happy to be doing all these incredible things like anyone would. But do you remember what Jesus, how he responds? He says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And that seems a little harsh at first, doesn't it? But what is Jesus saying here? 
Uh, it's foundational to us understanding the gospel, and it's foundational for us as we live and try to follow Jesus. The disciples were rejoicing in what God had done for them, or what they had done for God. And Jesus says, instead of rejoicing about what all the stuff you're doing for God, you need to be rejoicing about what God has done for you. And he says, God has written your name in heaven. Like, Christian, if you are following Jesus today, it's because God has written your name in heaven. The book of Ephesians says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. Like before the earth was even here, God chose you and he wrote your name permanently in heaven. And it's not because you and I are so great, it's not because he knew we were gonna do a bunch of good things. He loves you because he loves you, not because of your performance. And if you're here today, and again, you don't know what you believe, but this stuff is starting to get a hold of you, you're starting to think, well, what if this stuff is true? What if really God really does forgive me and love me and accept me purely based on his grace, purely because of what he has done? Uh, please don't let anything in your past keep you from doing that, from pursuing Jesus. I, I know as a church, like Big C Church, all Christians, we, sometimes we don't do a very good job of talking about this and explaining it. But the beauty of the gospel is that we only love God because he first loved us. And it's not because we are so lovely, but Jesus came in order to make us lovely and beautiful and clean. Don't rejoice about what you have done for God. Rejoice about what God has done for you and that by faith in Jesus, your name is permanently written in heaven. Uh, so this summer, our family's gonna be living at Alpine. It's a camp, it's a boys camp in Mentone, Alabama. We're really excited. I was a counselor there like 15, 16 years ago. Um, and I'm gonna be like the camp minister but in terms of getting the job, it was wonderful because out of the blue, Glenn, the camp director, just called me and said, hey, would you like to come work at camp this summer? Uh, Holly and I talked about it, we prayed about it. You know, living in the woods for three months is like paradise to me. Don't ask Holly about it yet, she's not quite there. <laughs> uh, so we decided to do it uh, and I called Glenn, accept the job, and he said, great, now all you have to do is go online and fill out the application. He said, it's just a formality, but we just have to have it on file to be good. Um, and I've gotta say, it was the least stressful application I've ever filled out in my life. Because it didn't matter. It didn't matter what my job experience was. It didn't matter who I put as references, and I didn't have to like coach them to what they were gonna say when these guys called them. They weren't even gonna call them, because I already had the job. <laughs> my name was already written in the, the Camp Alpine books, if they have those. And it had nothing to do with what I had done. Right? It was all because of what other people had done on my behalf. I think Ben might have talked to Thomas and maybe some other conversations happened, so thank you, but I did nothing. And it would be silly of me to sit there and think, man, I, I, did, I really crushed it filling this application out. I did such a good job. <laughs> rejoice not in what you have done, Christian, rejoice in what has been done for you. So what, is a, what does a great Christian look like? First and foremost, it looks like someone who is constantly looking to God for wisdom and insight. Constantly looking to Jesus and how he teaches us to live, how he lives. It's someone who talks more about the things of God and what God has done than what they have done for God and what they're doing. In other words, a great Christian looks really humble. Right? Uh, there's a quote that I used to attribute it, and it's always contributed to C.S. Lewis, but he didn't actually say it. Somebody else kind of came and took something good that he said and just tweaked it a little bit. But it's really good, so I'm gonna quote it anyway. So someone who plagiarized from C.S. Lewis once said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, 
Humility is thinking of yourself less. Isn't that great? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. In other words, being humble doesn't mean you're an Eeyore and you walk around and you say, oh, I just I didn't do a very good job of that. You know, I could have done better. Poor me. Because if you're doing that, you might seem like you're being really humble, but who are you focused on in that moment? Yourself. You're still only talking about you and you're still only worried about you. Being humble doesn't mean you're always down on yourself. A, um, a humble person won't be thinking about themselves at all. Uh, in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, you remember how he starts off? The very first thing he says in this famous sermon, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Another way to say it is that blessed are the spiritually poor, those who know that they bring nothing to the table in relation to their standing with God. And it's the same concept that Jesus is talking about in this passage when he says that if you, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. You have to be a servant to all. I remember Tim Keller saying something really helpful about being last and being poor in spirit. And he said the problem you and I have with being poor in spirit uh, is that even if we don't think we're like these amazing men and women who deserve to be praised for all the good stuff we've done, we still want to be what he calls middle class in spirit. Isn't that great? Uh, when you're middle class in spirit, sure, you'll admit that you're not perfect, you're not always consistent, you might kind of fudge the truth just a little bit sometimes, uh, you might do and say things that you know you're gonna regret later, you might let your mind wander to places it shouldn't, but like, you still pay your taxes. <laughs> you, you don't cheat on your spouse, you haven't killed anyone lately, uh, or at all. Do, do you say what, what, what you really mean if that's how you think? You're saying, I'm not rich in spirit by any means. I'm not the greatest. I'm not like the disciples thought. Uh, they said, you know, I've got plenty of blemishes to my name, but I'm not totally bankrupt. I've done a lot of good things. I've been generous. I've given my time and my money away. There's a lot of things I could have done that I didn't. That should count for something, right? If that is our pro thought process, then we're what he calls middle class in spirit, not poor. Hey, we're not, we're not first but we're definitely not last. Like there's some people underneath us. Thinking, you know, sure I don't deserve a place in heaven, but I definitely don't deserve hell. I don't deserve death and separation from God. Jesus says that even the middle class in spirit, even the people who think they're kind of riding the middle, aren't getting it in the kingdom of God. So the question is, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be last? Or better, probably for a lot of us, how do I go from being middle class in spirit to being poor in spirit? Two ways. And they both stem from the fact that the biggest problem you and I are gonna have in following Jesus is the thought that they, we still have anything at all to contribute, right? That you have any part in being adopted into the family of God. First thing, uh, you can only be poor in spirit if you categorize even your good deeds as being tainted by sin and therefore not really all that good at all. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, he said it this way, this is chapter 64. He says, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, literally dirty underwear. It's a gross illustration, but it gets the point across. Uh, George Whitfield, he was an evangelist in early America, like the 1700s, what we call the Great Awakening. Um, he was this famous traveling pastor. I promise I read other books besides like old dead preacher biographies. <laughs> But George Whitfield, he was famous for saying things like, you know, even my repentance needs to be repented of, which I think goes a little too far, but you get the point he's saying, right? He's saying even the things that we think are good and think that, that we're called to do and are good things, 
we need to put those under the microscope and see why we're doing those and our heart and, and why we're doing those. So to, to put yourself in the mindset of being last and servant of all, uh, not only do you recognize that even your best deeds can never make you right with God, but secondly, that because God is who he is, he's perfect, he's holy, you have to recognize that not only is your spiritual bank account, it's not just zero, uh, you actually, you're in the red. You have a negative balance with God. Outside of Jesus, you and I are not neutral with God. To be poor in spirit means that you, are, you know that you are deeply in debt to God and that no amount of good deeds or good intentions can possibly pay off that debt. Christianity claims that it's only through the grace and goodness of God that he saves you at infinite cost to himself. Right? Uh, Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter two. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then just a few verses later he says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It says, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. To even begin to understand the gospel, you and I have to come to terms with the fact that we start off dead in our sins, spiritually dead, and in desperate need of God's grace and forgiveness. Uh, if you're middle class in spirit, I love that term. If you're middle class in spirit, you see yourself as not first, but definitely not last. Um, odds are you view Jesus as a really good teacher, a really good example. He taught some really neat things about love and forgiveness, and we should probably try to do those. But you can't believe that you're so sinful and so morally bankrupt that you couldn't contribute anything to your standing with him. That sounds way too harsh to say that we're dead in our sins, doesn't it? No, you might think, God, he owes me a few good things. He ought to answer some of my prayers for all the good things I've done, for all the sins that I've avoided and haven't done. If you're middle class in spirit, you'll think that you earned a certain standing with God through your hard work. And even the success you have in this life is due in large part to you. Are you put in the hard work? Y'all, to follow Jesus, uh, not only do you have to know how bad your sin is, how broken and messed up our relationship is to God without Jesus, but you also have to know how incredibly patient and kind and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving God is towards you and I. Is our standing with God based on our performance or is it based on the performance of Jesus on our behalf? So I love musicals. Uh, for like two years, I think the Hamilton soundtrack was about the only thing that was played in our house and in our car. Our kids are eight and five now and they can sing just about every word. We try to bleep out some of the stuff, but. Uh, and you can't love musicals and not enjoy Les Mis. It's just like the granddaddy of, of musicals. Uh, and in Les Mis, there's two main characters. There's Jean Valjean and there's Javert. And as I was thinking through this passage, they, those two guys are perfect examples of what it means to be kind of middle class in spirit and poor in spirit. People who think they're fine, they're not the best, but they're not the worst, but they're kind of in the middle, and people who know they're last, and they're a servant to all. Um, Javert is a detective. He hunts down criminals for a living. And the musical takes place over a couple decades. And over these decades, he is hell-bent on bringing Jean Valjean to justice. He's just hunting them down for years and years. Uh, Jean Valjean was in prison for 19 years. Right? Five years for what he did. The rest because he tried to run. Uh, so he was in prison for almost 20 years. And he was labeled a criminal for the rest of his life. When he finally gets out, he has to carry around this little piece of paper that says, 
I'm dangerous, I'm a criminal, don't trust me, pretty much. Which would make it really hard to get a job, I would think, if you have to show that to your employer. And so when he finally gets out, nobody wants anything to do with him. And there's only one person who shows him grace and mercy, and it's this bishop. And in the book, which I've almost read several times, it's huge, I've never actually finished it, but I have read this part. Uh, The bishop leads a really simple life, and all he has is some silver in his house, and those are the only things of value he has. Um, And if you know the story, Valjean is sleeping at his house at night, and he wakes up, and he steals a bunch of the silver, sticks it in a bag, and he runs away. And the police catch him, and they drag him back, and they throw him down at the bishop's feet, and they say, hey, we caught him, the guy who stole from you. And he had the nerve to tell us that you gave it to him. And the bishop has a choice here. Uh, He can say, yeah, he stole from me, giving my stuff back, and what's gonna happen to Valjean? He's gonna get locked up, and he's gonna probably die in a prison cell, like he's never getting out of there again. But what does the bishop do? It's beautiful. He says, let him go. I did give him the silver, and I'm really glad that you brought him back here because he says, Valjean, you forgot to take the nicest, most expensive silver I have. And he gives him these two silver candlesticks. And he says, why would you do that? You know, would you leave the best behind, is what he sings. Valjean, uh, he, knew his, he, you know, he knows that he's being treated better than he deserves just by being able to sleep in this guy's house and eating his food. And yet, after breaking trust with this man and stealing from him and running away, the bishop saves his life, and he gives him more good things. It's amazing. Valjean knew his poverty, spiritual and material, and as a result, he lives the rest of his life as one who is truly a servant to all, and he's poor in spirit. He's always helping people. He's always being gracious. He adopts this little girl. He's like putting himself in danger for other people's sake several times. Uh, he's got Javert like backed into a corner, and he refuses to hurt him or kill him. Javert, on the other hand, is the epitome of being middle class in spirit. Uh, He follows the rules and he expects everybody else to follow the rules and he has zero patience for those who break the law. In his mind, Jean Valjean was a criminal and that was that. He didn't deserve a second chance. And at one point in the story, you find out that Javert was born into these horrible circumstances. He was born inside a jail cell. He comes from nothing. Uh, And no one was gracious to him. No one gave him a leg up. But through just kind of sheer willpower and following the rules, he rose to the top. He was rewarded for his good behavior. He was rewarded for following the rules. And he had no empathy for people who were in bad situations because he earned his good life, right? Whereas Valjean's was given to him. The beauty of the gospel is that what you most desperately need can only be given to you. Full acceptance, full approval, a right standing with the God of the universe, forgiveness for every misstep that you've ever made in your life, life and light instead of death and darkness. You cannot achieve that. You have to receive it by faith. It was bought for you by the very blood of Jesus. And because he died for you, and because he rose again for you three days later from the dead and defeated death, the same will be true of you by faith in him. Amen? And please consider that an invitation. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Uh, We thank you that in all things, you ask things of us, but you do those things first, and you do them so much better than we could. Uh, You ask us to be humble and a servant, and you, God in the flesh, became man, humbled yourself, became a servant, and you willingly put yourself up on a cross 
to die for the sins of your people. Lord, there's no way we could be possibly as high as you, and there's no way we will ever go as low as you went for us. And so would you teach us humility? Would you teach us your grace and your love and your compassion for us? And would you help us to live out of that? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We could be possibly as high as you, and there's no way we will ever go as low as you went for us. And so would you teach us humility? Would you teach us your grace and your love and your compassion for us? And would you help us to live out of that? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.